Welcome to all listeners to the second part of this new discussion between me and Pierre Estev. I want to mention again that all music in these episodes is by Pierre. He composed and created all of it. And now to part two. On air. Yes. Continuing with our discussion about locations and their effects on creativity and creative choices, have you found this to happen often in your own life? Have you noticed that where you are has real effects on what you can create in that situation? What kinds of music and what kinds of ideas come to you? Yes, it's real that where you are inspires you some things, but it's not only about thinking or about psychology, it's also very physical. Uh, I have a, an anecdote about this. I was working two years ago for the soundtrack of a movie about the megaliths of Karnak, uh, which are in Brittany, an experience about shapes. There was someone drawing shapes on the sand, and people who have a, a strong um, feeling about things, how do you say, un sourcier. And Pythagore, he worked a lot on these special shapes that you can build based on mathematics. And uh, when you are in uh, such spaces, it can be either a building or just being in the shape which is drawn on the sand, for example. Then these shapes have special properties. And uh, for a lot of people, it explains why when you are uh, in a place which is built according uh, special proportions, then you feel something different than if it's not this kind of shape. You also had a great story relating to how you wrote or where you wrote Sunriders for the Atlantis games. Could you tell that story? I thought it was very interesting and relates so well to this topic. Yes, at that time I was um, living in a high place where you could see the horizon and uh, the feeling that it gave to me inspired me for composing uh, Sunriders. And I think it's not only about psychology, it's also a physical thing. For example, if you are in the mountain and you shout very loud, often there is an echo coming back to you at a certain rate, at a certain speed. And this speed 
is dealing uh, with a tempo, a BPM. And same for everywhere. So in the mountains, you have uh, this uh, feeling of being uh, uh, free, of being high uh, and uh, in a strong mood. But also it correlates with the fact that there is an echo coming back to you and this echo is giving a certain rhythm and this rhythm can be the rhythm of your song or of your composition. I completely agree. It's not only something that happens in the mind and that there are indeed real physical components to all this. As a simple example, being in a stuffy room is so very different with so many implications and effects compared to, for example, being outside or somewhere with an open window. Fresh air just allows us to function better in every way. And temperature is an acute issue for both of us right now because it's so hot. But yes, the basic thought behind all this is we can't be at our best if we're not in circumstances that are suitable for us as human beings. Yes, that's right. All our senses are working. Often, if we are doing music, we think about what we hear around us, but also what we see, what we feel, uh, which is the temperature, which is the humidity. All this affects ourselves and then affects the feeling, the mood where we are and what we are able to compose. And also, I think this is maybe why a lot of people uh, like to play uh, music or to write outside more oxygen and then maybe you you get uh, better ideas uh, when you are outside than you are inside
This also makes me think of the opposite situation, like whether some of our gloomier artists in various fields spend a lot of time creating in, for example, stuffy little inside places. I've also noticed how much it can affect at least my own feeling of freedom, uh, whether I'm in a house that has one floor or several floors. I feel like there's a whole different psychology and also the physical side to these different types of houses. So I wanted to ask you this maybe strange question. If you had identical rooms available for creative work, both on an upstairs floor and a downstairs floor, which one do you think you would choose to create in? Uh, I don't know, because uh, I almost uh, always lived in houses with only one floor. Uh, but I, I happened to live in Paris in a very high building, which was uh, 30 floors. And I used to live in the 20th floor. And uh, it was a very good experience because at that time I, made my, I built my studio on two sides and I could see very far away uh, when I was living there. I could see the sun rising and, and also when there were storms, uh, it was very epic to live there. And uh, it was the time, I don't know if it has uh, an importance, uh, where I uh, composed the music for Atlantis 1 and Atlantis 2 and also Black Moon Chronicles. And I think that where I lived at that time influenced me in some ways to compose this kind of music. understand. My own feeling since I first started thinking about things like this has been that I'd choose an upstairs place for creative work, but I haven't yet had a chance to test my theory that this might apply to many others as well, since I haven't had the opportunity to ask this of many people.
We were talking earlier about I was referring to gloomy artists living in maybe cramped spaces and maybe creating gloomy work, at least partly because of that. You've had very different experiences taking place outside and in beautiful environments and circumstances and had a very interesting set of experiences being part of this project on an island off the western coast of France. I wanted to ask about all this. Uh, you were all outside, uh, very much in contact with nature, creating games. Yes, I was invited on this island, which is called uh, L'Ile Dieu. It's a very small island. And uh, I worked with the population for almost six months. It was not consecutive months. The more I stayed was one month. And I went there every month for a period of one week or two weeks. And there, we, with two other friends, Patricia Russito and Pierre Godiller, which is a programmer, we were three. And uh, we helped people to build uh, uh, 17 adventure games, which are point-and-clicks like a kind of Atlantis or this kind of video games. And uh, they did everything from the beginning, the story, interactions. They did the actors. They made the sound design, the drawings, programming uh, and everything. And uh, they were from 8 to 18. And uh, there was uh, about uh, 100 people involved, including the adults uh, of the college or of the small classes. What kind of weather did you have? I've assumed mostly sunny. Yes, mostly sunny, but also there was some rain during winter and it was sometimes windy, but it was very inspiring. And we went uh, a lot with the people outside to take pictures because the rules that we invented was that every game should be placed on the island and at any period of time and uh, everything was possible but it had to take place on the island. So we went often outside to take pictures of the buildings or of the forest or of the seashore and then use this in the game.
Did you also use the 360-degree cameras that you mentioned to me as a possibility? Uh, I mean, before I could talk and ask about this. <laughs> yes, it was uh, the first idea was to use this kind of camera. When we did this, it was impressive how it looked to Atlantis, the game. But finally, we did not use this because it was too technological for the people. And we preferred to keep the drawings of the children or of the young people because they had very strong characters and it was interesting to use this and to stay on the story, on the art things rather than too technical things. And it was a good idea to do this because at the end of the day, the games have a, a very strong character. That sounds like a great choice and makes great sense. I think this was a fantastic project and it certainly looks like the children were having a joyful time. Yes, also they were very creative and uh, we worked in the schools where they usually go. And uh, sometimes we could work for the whole day or half day and uh, they didn't have their usual courses. But it was very interesting to see uh, how they could learn by themselves. And sometimes the teachers were impressed to see how um, some children that they were thinking was not good for school were in fact very clever and intelligent and could potentially be the first of the class. This uh, experience were very interesting in a pedagogical way, because uh, we could see that when you love something, you are very fast to learn and you can have uh, good ideas and you are interested in things uh, that you are not when you are sitting on a chair and listening to the teacher. And all the teachers noticed this and then they said that they will use this way of learning in the future because they could discover the children in another way. I think it's really great that things are developing this way. I'm glad about these new directions, how life and school can be for young people in places where things have progressed this way or where opportunities like this come along. And it seems to have really great consequences regarding how things are for them. Yeah, uh, and also as the adults were also included in the game and they were both adults and children at the same level, of creativity, then uh, they had a different relationship to, to one another. For example, there was the director of the school 
which was a very impressive person because he, he was tricked uh, and also at the same time uh, very kind with the children. And uh, we were uh, recording the voices and it was in the future in a spaceship and there was a, a computer and uh, the director was coming and I asked him if he would like to do the voice of the computer. And, uh, and the children insist, yes, yes, please do it. And so he said, okay, okay. <laughs> and he did the voice. <laughs> it was a voice like uh, Homer Simpson. And he said, I am the robot. And he <laughs> talked like this. And uh, from that time, the children began to have uh, um, a different idea of him. And uh, there was an interview where they explained this in a documentary. And it's very touching because uh, by doing something together at the same level, um, people can make uh, very uh, impressive things. Yes, that's a huge and important concept that I hope many people will take note of and catch on to in all kinds of ways and contexts. There are many lessons to learn from these experiences you've been talking about, and I'm glad we get to hear about them. That was a great story about how this experience changed how the young people saw the director, how they started to see him as a person in a whole different way. Yes, but it was true for every one of us. Uh, I mean, uh, we were not the, the people who know how to make a game. Uh, we learned a lot from them about what is uh, a, a game, what is a strong story, how do you create uh, interesting interactions in your game. And uh, there were a lot of great ideas that came from the children and even the teachers. So everyone learned from the other one. And it was a, a very strong uh, experience, I think, for all of us. I imagine that there must have been many ideas and topics that we wouldn't usually be seeing in commercial expensive games in terms of what the stories were about. Did you find that to be the case? Yes, uh, we had no limits in what could be uh, involved in the game. So according to the imagination of the people, uh, you could go from the dinosaurs to space to Second World War. Uh, it was very funny how they could express uh, themselves.
there was a, a teacher of English. She was a, an old lady. She was going to retire some months later. And she, she told us, you know, I, I'm, I cannot be involved in this experience because I know nothing about games. I don't even know how to use my, my phone. And so I don't know what I can do. But she, she came uh, often to see uh, what the children were doing. And once they did a lot of researches on Google to find information uh, about a lot of topics. Uh, and uh, we told them it would be maybe uh, easier and you would find more information if you do the search in English rather than in French. So, uh, as myself now, a lot of words were missing to them and uh, they could not uh, do the search in English, but uh, the, the teacher was there. And so they asked her, uh, how do you say this word? How do you say this word? And she helped them and uh, she found a way of being useful. And uh, all of the children were always asking to her. But uh, before this experience, she was the one which is old-fashioned and uh, she has nothing to... They were bored in, the, in, her, in her class. But uh, for this game, she was very useful. I love that she was also included and got to be part of that. I think it's the kind of experience that's rare in life where there's sooner or later a place for everyone in a small community, whether a temporary or permanent community. Uh, some of my favorite stories also feature this as a theme, like uh, the 1990s TV series called Northern Exposure, which I also sometimes talked about on my podcast. But it's great that it also happens in real life sometimes.
There is also a funny story. There were uh, some adolescent boys and girls. They wanted to be funny. And they asked us, uh, can we put a, a porn um, a book in uh, our story? <laughs> so uh, Patricia said to them, okay, if it's, worth, uh, if it's good for the story and if, if, you, if you use this book for a certain reason, then you can do it. So they were, <laughs> and, and, and so uh, their story uh, took place in the Second World War and uh, the captain of the Nazis, uh, he was, uh, they wanted to make fun of this guy. So um, he had sweets, he hided sweets that he would eat when nobody sees him. Uh, he had also some toys. This uh, Nazi had a plushie that he would hide, and a porn uh, magazine. And you could take this porn magazine uh, with you, and then you, you will give it to uh, one guard who is missing his wife. Then he goes away, and uh, you can uh, enter the place. So it was funny because uh, they wanted to make a joke. They thought that we would say, no, it's not uh, good to use porn. And in fact, there was no porn in this episode. It was just a book. And uh, the only thing they had to ask themselves is, how would the cover of this porn book look like? And uh, you have to know that we made this uh, game in pixel art. So a book in a pixel art, you have only some pixels, <laughs> you can see nothing. Yeah. But they made searches on internet and it led them to know what is pornography, uh, how pornography uh, looked like uh, at that time and, and so on. And they learned a lot about this and they have uh, some lessons, education about sex. And this was a topic that was uh, not uh, easy for them because they were just uh, laughing and they felt uncomfortable about this topic. Uh, but doing this in the game, and it, it was also, uh, it had a, a usage in the game, it changed everything. So it was very funny to find this book and to use it in the game. But also, we were talking about this uh, with the children. And uh, there was uh, the teacher of Spanish who was a very feminist lady. She heard the word porn and she said, how, how do you dare doing this with the children? It, it's a shame and so on. But she didn't know the context. And so the girls uh, explained her why there was uh, this book in the video game. And then she understood from this moment, they could speak about sexuality uh, more easily because everyone was more relaxed and the adults could understand that the children uh, may uh, joke about sex. And so it made everyone see the pornography from a different point of view.
That's great how that ended up breaking the ice on this topic, as you described, uh, especially since it will naturally come up sooner or later in everyone's life, a sexuality and uh, even needing to learn what pornography is, and preferably from mature people who can handle this topic delicately and uh, maturely. I also wanted to comment that the puzzle they came up with, the one you just described, uh, that's quite a good puzzle really, because um, if you were in the Second World War and needed to distract a Nazi guard by giving him something, that item would likely work. Yes, uh, also in, in this same game, which is called Le Dossier de la Torpille, in English the Torpedo File, the goal was to um, there were U-boats around the island, and uh, this U-boat torpedoed the the other boats of the French or English. And uh, to avoid this, the player had to find uh, which were the coordinates where the U-boat would go to torpedo the boats. But they knew nothing about what coordinates are, longitude, latitude. They did not know about this, so they went to Google and they learned and they asked also the teachers to help them on this topic, because it's a mathematical topic. And then they used what they learned in Google to place the U-boat exactly at the right place uh, in the game. So this is also another example on how, when uh, you are motivated to do something, you can uh, do a lot of searches and learn a lot of things, because you need them. It's not that someone forces you to learn something you don't need. You need something, then you search for this, and then you know uh, how to use this knowledge. Uh, there was one uh, one guy accompanying the children when when they go outside, and uh, this guy had a strong interest in stones, in rare stones, uh, and he liked shamanism and uh, these kind of things. And for him, stones had a strong power, and he was happy that we did this work. He proposed us to bring uh, all these precious stones at school. So he showed the stones and, and explained the power of this stone and the power of another stone. And uh, the children were very impressed and they had the idea to make a game where you have to find some of these stones, 
put them back in a special place on the island so that it would uh, restore the unity of the island. That guy, he didn't say use these stones in the game. He wanted to show them. And then the, the children were so interested in that that they made the story around the stones. these things we've been talking about and how they came up with such a diversity of ideas is reminding me of the very early days of computer games uh, like the 1980s because uh, of how imaginative things could be then there weren't yet many templates so in this way it sounds similar having so much freedom and I think it will be interesting to see if some of the people involved will continue making games yeah I think some will do, but uh, it was for all of us uh, and all of them a strong experience that I think will be remembered. Do you think something like this may also happen in the future or was this a one-off event? For us, it was one event, but after that experience, the uh, national education called us and also uh, some people involved in education uh, wanted to do this again and uh, asked us if they could do so. Of course, we said yes, and uh, maybe we will help them explain how we did this. And if other people want to reproduce this, we will be happy that they use our experience. Were these games made for just the people involved or are any of them available somewhere else also for others to play? Yes, when we finished the games, we gave them on USB uh, keys to everyone. And uh, recently, we put them on, on a site on the internet where they can be uh, played online. Thank you.
Then there's a topic that came up only briefly during our earlier discussion, but it's a topic that's very fascinating and fundamental to me because it relates to the very origins of music, and that topic is sound patrimony. Could you explain how you see that term and how does it relate to your musical thinking? Yes, I was uh, working in the caves of Isturitz to record my album Stalactica. And uh, in this cave, there is a, a long history about sound. In this place, people uh, um, discovered almost 30 flutes, uh, prehistoric flutes made out of uh, bone. Also, this cave has very big spaces with long reverberation. And all these uh, things, and also, of course, you have stalagmites and stalactites, uh, which can produce sound. And uh, talking with a researcher, he told me that all that you can hear today was already there 10,000, 30 or 50,000 years ago. And this is the, the idea of sound patrimony. It is that there is a patrimony for buildings. You are talking about the patrimony for building. You are talking about the patrimony for literature. But also you have the patrimony of sound. And in this place, for example, in the caves, the shape of the caves hasn't changed since when people were living there. So you can learn a lot of things through sound. In the patrimony of sound, we can uh, include the shapes of the building having a special resonance. We can include all the instruments that were found in the caves, because it was not only flutes, it was also conchs. We found a lot of small whistles. There are also rhombs, which is an instrument that you turn at the end of a string. And all this is directly linked to the history of the people and what sound they could produce, what sound they could hear. Because if you go in the cave, uh, what you hear hasn't changed since ancient times. But as soon as you go outside, the sound is not the same anymore. The weather has changed. Uh, you have a lot of noises that were not present at that time. Even the birds are not the same and uh, nature has changed. So we lost what could uh, have been living there sound-wise, but in the caves, all this is kept intact.
Also, it occurred to me to think the other way, that whatever we know about buildings back then, uh, those and then natural places would have been the only places for music to happen in. This may now sound a little stupid because I couldn't think of a better way to put it, but um, of course there were no opera houses or concert halls or anything like that. So all music took place in entirely natural settings or some early human-built structure, like a hut. The circumstances were very much connected to nature in all these cases. Yes, and uh, if we are talking about sound patrimony, we can have the same, for example, in uh, Greek theatres, old uh, ancient uh, Greece, because there are almost no places where you can find what the acoustics could be like because parts of the buildings are gone. We still have stones, but there were also wood involved and uh, tissues and so on. In the case of Greece, I'm working on a project trying to find how the ancient theatres would sound like, because they were well known to have uh, very good acoustics. And even if some of them have a good acoustic, it's not uh, often the one that was uh, heard at the time. This might be a poor example, but it occurred to me to think also of the Roman Colosseum and how it's no longer completely intact. So we can no longer experience the exact same acoustics there, since some parts of the walls have since been destroyed. Yes, it's this kind of idea. Are there certain aims that this topic, sound patrimony, is going for other than understanding how things were back then? I guess what I mean to ask is, is it uh, more of historical concern or is part of the aim then to apply the knowledge to creative work in the present? Yes, like in every uh, research, you can use what you learn in other periods or topics. In the cave, we could learn that uh, there is a strong link between where the drawings are made on the walls and the quality of the sound. Some researchers found out that in places where you have a strong resonance or a very low resonance, it's the places where people liked to draw on the walls. And uh, this can be uh, seen in various caves. 
So this idea, it was used at that time, but today we can still use this, uh, this thing. And uh, there is a link between that and what you said about places where you feel better or not. From uh, Sound Patrimony, I learned a lot for my personal compositions, for example. one anecdote that was unfortunately left out of our first discussion back in 2021 because we had stopped recording when we then talked about this just among ourselves. I had been looking at the terrific CD-ROM extra materials for the Atlantis games and I love this reference in the biographies of you and Stefan Pick to how you experienced some particularly boring music lessons in your youth taught by, I believe, an elderly female teacher. And I decided not to ask about this live during our recording because I worried she might be offended. But then he replied, no, no, it's okay. She's long dead. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, I had several boring school classes because uh, first one was the piano lessons. <laughs> I loved the piano, but um, the first um, teacher I had was an old lady. And uh, each time I made a mistake, she would hurt my fingers with a, a kind of stick. It was very painful. Uh, but at the end of the day, she taught me some things. And uh, also uh, the worst was when we were playing uh, some school flute Uh, lessons and we were playing only uh, old-fashioned music and boring music and the teacher was explaining to us 
the life of Mozart, of Beethoven, and so on. And we almost never did music. <laughs> so it was terrible to, to listen to someone talking about music without really playing uh, music ourselves. those same CD-ROM extra materials, you were also talking about various other very interesting topics. And there was a particular term I wanted to ask about. But also in general, I was very interested to see these kinds of thoughts expressed in materials related to games. It was very unusual and innovative back then to have something of this depth included Uh, I'm stressing this because at this point in time, it may not be so easy for people to see how original this really was. So I wanted to ask first, what inspired you to include these kinds of materials for the extras? And uh, second, uh, specifically about these terms you used, horizontal and vertical culture. This was mentioned in connection with both you and Stefan. Yes, by uh, horizontal and uh, vertical culture, we meant and we still mean that you can learn on a specific topic, uh, for example, music. You can uh, spend a life to learn about music and only music. And this is a fine way to go deeper in the subject. But uh, the complementary side would be horizontal culture, which would be how I can learn from literature, from history, from science, to improve my composition and to be inspired by uh, other things. So the more I learn in various topics, on various subjects, the more it feeds me uh, for my compositions and for my uh, art practice.
There were also pictures of some of the instruments, as well as interesting quotes from people. I'm not sure I had ever seen such extra materials in connection with the game. So I wanted to ask what was your and Stefan's inspiration for doing this? In fact, the music was composed and played by learning a lot of things out of music. For example, reading books of philosophers or learning from the old Atlantis and so on. And we wanted to share this with the listeners or the people who were playing the game because uh, we thought that it could give some insights and some ways of researches for the people. And uh, for example, I still do this. I have a notebook where I note everything that interests me. It can be a quote from someone or it can be technical knowledge. So I write everything down and uh, I read then this uh, some days or weeks later and uh, some topics start to emerge from this and uh, I end by learning a lot on these topics. So Stefan and I, we wanted to share this experience with the people and not only the music, but what inspired the music. I really valued finding and exploring all that commentary and other materials that you included. I also think that this kind of thing has helped deepen the way games are thought of. Fortunately, things are different now, but my sense in the 1990s was that there was still a struggle to have games taken seriously as a form of art and a medium for art. So I feel it was really worthwhile work you were doing, adding all these things. About the topic of vertical and horizontal culture, I've also found in my own life the benefits of going both ways.
this also reminded me of, I found myself thinking about a lot of David Lynch's work. I find the flow of his storytelling musical also when there's not so much actual music involved. So it's very interesting to me because I felt that working on music myself has also had that kind of effect on stories and poems that I create. Yeah, this is also true for people like uh, Leonardo da Vinci or David Lynch. Leonardo da Vinci, for example, was at the same time an artist, a scientist involved in making war tools even. And you can find this interest in various subjects. Uh, when you look at his notebooks, for example, you can see he has interests in a lot of topics. So this idea we talked about, about horizontal culture, which also has a link with biomimicry, because in biomimicry, you think uh, a subject uh, in a systemic way, because you find that all entrances have a link together. So the music and the script in Twin Peaks, for example, form a kind of system. And maybe it's a reason why you find it musical, even if there is less or almost no music. Yes, I believe there's a lot of truth to what you're saying. Uh, this is really interesting to me and relates to the topic of horizontal culture, because he's been involved in so many different areas of art as well. In addition to doing music later on, he started as a painter. Then he had an experience that made him realize he could do moving paintings and that led to making films. And he also sculpts and even makes pieces of furniture. He can make things with his hands. And when he was growing up, his father always had a workshop so that if anyone in the family got an idea, they could immediately start, for example, making a chair. And I'm sure that, like also in your case, has helped him and his work become so unique. And indeed, also, it occurs to me just now to say systemic and unified. Oh, but sorry, now I left you kind of in a corner by just keeping on talking about him without really giving you an opening to respond. It's very interesting. In fact, it's the same with my practice. I began as a composer, but uh, in fact, I'm also making sound sculptures, which at the beginning were instruments, but they became uh, autonomous, and now they are sound sculptures. It led me to sound installations and then to plastic installations with the sky flowers, flowers of change you mentioned. And also, there is a kind of path between all these art expressions, but uh, sometimes this leads also to things which have less to deal with art, like pedagogy or sharing uh, a knowledge with other people or working in a team. All this may seem different, but it's all the same topics and it's uh, thinking about uh, things in a systemic way.
I really appreciate that there are rare people like you and David Lynch who have wanted to share what you have learned. I felt that not many artists are like this. They either don't know how to do it or don't even want to do it. The sharing and passing on and of information. And I think it's really valuable and special when someone has the gift and generosity of heart to communicate these things like you did already starting with the CD-ROM extras in the 1990s, uh, preserving also the thinking behind the work like you were talking about. And then there was a lovely thing at the end of the closing credits for the first Atlantis game. 
I still remember it and how it made me smile the many times I watched and listened to those ending credits. They listed how many working hours and how many pencils and so on it took to create the game and even how many cups of coffee were drunk while making it. <laughs> yes. And the thing is that that was both amusing and instructive. It made me understand what an enormous amount of work and dedication had gone into the game and how if one person had tried to create that game, it would have taken him or her literally decades to complete. Yes, and it's not only about hours, it's also about inspiration, how you get inspired by other people. And when you begin to have a conversation, as we do have now, uh, then new ideas emerge that would not have been there if you are alone. Yes, I found that to be true myself. And it's been one of the best things about interacting with people in general for me. Like you mentioned in these interviews, or rather discussions, I like to call them discussions because, uh, sorry, I can leave this part out. It's just that I've ended up kind of avoiding the word interview also with podcasts, because often on talk shows and so on, it's like an assembly line. One person comes in and goes out, another one comes in and goes out. So it doesn't seem like a real human interaction. Uh, I've been, of course, aiming for something a little different with these uh, episodes. Yes, I think it's interesting uh, to make the difference between interview and uh, conversation. Because in an interview, when I am interviewed, I end by saying always the same thing because people ask me almost always the same questions. In a discussion, we don't know where we are going. And I like this uh, kind of wandering around. And you can have an idea, you explain your idea, and it leads to another idea. And I think it's very interesting. I like to listen to this kind of podcasts like yours. Also for horizontal culture, as we talked earlier, there is a link between, for example, the place where you are and the inspiration you get. 
if you are a composer, for example. So you can ask yourself, in what building would I like to live? Which would be the size of this building? How would it be exposed to the north, south, and so on? Which materials would be there, and so on? For example, in a lot of uh, recording studios, they are um, very soundproof, but uh, sometimes you are in the dark, uh, you don't see uh, the exterior world. So it's not a place where I like to be. So if I think my music globally or horizontally, then there is a link between music and architectures. And there are some composers or architects who are at the same time architects and composers. But also it can be, uh, there is a link between music and woodworking. A lot of instruments are made out of wood. So it led me to be interested in learning how you can work with wood, at which period of time you would cut the wood, which wood would be interesting to make this instrument or another instrument and so on. And when you begin thinking like this horizontally, then you get, uh, you are interested in a lot and a lot of topics. I become interested in uh, programming languages because I was using computers. It was frustrating for me to be just a consumer of specific software. And when I want to do something else, then uh, I'm interested in having the possibility to do so. So I learned some uh, languages. And from uh, one topic to another topic, you end up being interested in a lot of things. That's a perfect note on which to conclude our discussion, at least for now. It's been such a pleasure talking with you again, Pierre, and I wanted to thank you again for making the time for this and for being such a great guest. And also, I wanted to add, because I forgot this the last time, you are, of course, always more than welcome in Finland. So if you plan a visit at some point, let me know. Okay, thank you, Simo. Yes, it was uh, also a pleasure for me to talk with you. And I will not forget to come to visit you in Finland because you live in such a beautiful place. Thank you very much. And the same for your country also. Thanks again. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.